From the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin, welcome to The Surgery Set. I'm Jonathan Kohler, an assistant professor in pediatric surgery here in Madison, home of the Badgers. This is a podcast all about surgery and the individuals who are at the cutting edge of it, and we're glad you're here. Welcome to The Surgery Set. If you enjoy the podcast, please rate us on iTunes, Google Play, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever you've downloaded this podcast. It takes a few seconds, and it makes a big difference. Thanks. In this episode, we're talking with Dr. Joseph Losey. He's professor of surgery and pediatrics in the Division of Plastic Surgery at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine. I spoke with Dr. Losey after he gave a Grand Rounds talk called The History of Surgical Education. It's a remarkable distillation of how surgery education evolved from colonial America to where we are today and where it's headed in the future. We have a link to Dr. Losey's talk on the Surgery Set webpage, surgery.wisc.edu podcast. I hope you enjoy our discussion. Dr. Losey, welcome to the surgery set. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. It's an honor to be here. You make the point that early in uh, in the history of American surgery, it was kind of a, a literal wild west, and, and we've come a long way from there. Maybe you could just describe for us quickly sort of how surgery existed in the U.S., you know, in the 1700s, and take us quickly through a couple centuries, and then we'll talk a little bit more about kind of where things are headed. And in the United States, in in colonial America, there was really no training for physicians. Um, It was an apprenticeship model. Uh, You would, at a young age, 12, 13 years old, you would tie yourself, indenture yourself to a physician and hang out with them for five to eight years and learn the trade. And, And many of those individuals, certainly they all... They all practiced some degree of medicine and, and some surgery. Uh, many of them had, had no ed- formal education at all. Some were totally illiterate. There weren't pharmacies back then. It was uh, truly the wild, wild west. And if you really wanted to have training, you'd have to go to Europe in London, uh, Vienna, Germany, um, and spend some time there and then come back to the United States. And that's what the pioneers of American met surgery did. So it started with 12-year-olds apprenticed to barbers, essentially, and, and then people started going to Europe and then brought that European model back here and then made it kind of a unique American thing. Yeah. So uh, those, those surgeons that trained in London um, came back to the United States, and they were the first uh, professors of surgery, and they, they opened the first medical schools. The University of Pennsylvania was the first uh, and the second uh, was the College of Physicians and Surgeons in New York City, and really developed the American style, which was based a lot on the European style of training physicians. And, and that really changed with Halstead and Osler and the new Hopkins uh, model of uh, residency education. I remember when I was a resident sort of thinking to myself in you know, the later part of a 24-hour shift, like this surgical training model feels like it was developed by a manic depressive cocaine addict who like lived in a hospital all the time. And it turns out that's, that's actually true. That's yeah, that's uh, Halstead who, who is widely credited. I don't think anyone would disagree, you know, established the first surgical residency. And um, he, was in fact before he was at at at, um, at Hopkins, he was in New York City, and uh, and that's where he learned of the use of cocaine 
in, uh, as an anesthetic in ophthalmology, and he performed these experiments on himself, his colleagues, on medical students, when, where if you injected cocaine near a peripheral nerve, you could block that nerve and then do uh, surgery. Because if you think about it, at that time, antibiotics weren't available. Anesthesia was not what we know it is today. This way, you could put a tourniquet on an awake patient and do an extremity operation. Problem was, he and, and everyone else uh, became addicted to cocaine, and most of them died because of their addictions. And Halstead was hospitalized in New York, and uh, they got him off of cocaine by substituting morphine, and then he went to Hopkins as a as a you know addicted morphine user. And there established sort of the traditional, what we think of now as the traditional residency program, though his was pyramidal, right? It was it was based on this idea that you would bring in far more people than you graduated. You'd have yeah. eight interns who graduated into four yeah. accomplished surgeons. Yeah, that was his pyramidal model, which probably was based much on a European model. It was a, a competency-based model, uh, just not done in a nice way. Yeah. Uh, you know, you brought eight interns in and, and you got rid of four of them during the first year and only four survived the cut. And then they were all admitted to a training program of variable lengths that averaged around eight years and they all became surgeon scientists and basically when he said you were ready you evolved into being uh, the chief resident or the house officer and then went into independent practice. And for all of its comparative brutality I mean you make the point that that the people who made it through that program went on to become giants in American surgery. Yeah. Uh, truly, truly. I mean, the, you know, the giants in American surgery were trained at that time with, um, with Halstead. So it was effective, but it also, as a byproduct, led to many, many surgeons who were poorly trained. You know, they, just, they didn't just leave the field. They went out into practice with just one year of training or one or two years of training. So it had a, its side effect was probably not very good. I'd heard about the pyramidal programs. I'd never thought about what happened to the people who washed out. It's not like they then went and completed a pediatrics residency. Right. They went and hung a yeah. shingle. Well, Tom Starzl was admitted into the pyramidal structure at Hopkins. And I was involved in the hand transplant program at Pitt. Hmm. And um, because of that, became friendly with uh, Dr. Starzl, who was really at the grandfather phase of his you know, career. And, and I got to travel some with him and got to know him, actually. Oh, wow. uh, an amazing, amazing man. Um, but he is, I can remember the stories, him telling me that he was um, at Hopkins, you know, he was debrided as uh, he was kicked out of the pyramidal system. And then I believe he went to Denver yeah. to finish his training. So Wow. Um, and that so the pyramidal the formal pyramidal system was sort of replaced with this what you call the rectangular program that started at, at Mass General where sort of you accepted and the expectation was that you would finish and that more or less is what most people are doing today. Yeah. But we're coming full circle. We're moving now back towards that sort of you're done when we say you're done when you when we feel you're ready system that that Halstead originally envisioned. Yeah, it's sort of like going back to the future. Um, in Canada, in 2009, the Department of Orthopedic Surgery began this experiment of training toward 
competency versus time. And it was very successful. They adopted that as their full mode of training. And now uh, the Royal College has determined in Canada that all of the medicine, all of training, all surgery residencies will be based on competency versus time. So it's really the Halsteadian kind of finishing when you're done. The challenge is, of course, is to determine what is competent and to not only decide what's competent, but how to evaluate it and determine when somebody is. And basically, we do it on a very, in America today, on a very holistic kind of, you know, you've done your five years of training, and a panel of senior attendings have a holistic gut feeling that, yep, in fact, you're competent and you're done. And, and that has served America well, I believe. And there is some objectivity to it, but... but um, Evolving to this competency-based model, we have to have uh, a lot more objective uh, measures of, we have to decide what is competent and then how do we objectively measure it. Having come up in the existing system, it's just so hard to imagine sort of the practicalities of how, Mm -hmm. how that would work. How would you know that someone was ready to go? And then say someone finished in four years instead of five, like how do you cover your services? And and you've actually sort of gotten into the weeds on this and are starting a competency-based program. Yeah, about three years ago, um, we uh, at Pitt put together a proposal, and the American Board of Plastic Surgery approved it, and then we submitted it to the um, ACGME, um, and they felt that it would be better for us to establish a consortium to do it. So we went back to the drawing board, and uh, the four institutions, uh, Pitt, uh, Hopkins, uh, Baylor, Scott, and White, and Michigan all banded together. And the uniqueness of that is that those four institutions all have leaders that are actively involved in surgical education. And the three, Pitt, Hopkins, and Michigan, are large programs, and Baylor, Scott, and White is a small program. And so we went back to the American Board of Plastic Surgery. They approved it. And and really, the proposal is pretty simple. It's to allow us to graduate someone in five years and allow them to sit for their boards instead of six. Canada, plastic surgeons train for five years. And we used to train for five years. And it's not that long ago that we decided that six would be better, the American Board of Plastic Surgery. So it's not a huge Experiment. It's not a huge jump, yeah. although it's, it took two years to work its way through the ACGME and to get their approval, and um, it's been a long road, um, but we're going to start in uh, July of this year. Yeah, I mean, you make the point that, that all these acronym societies, you know, serve a really important role in providing non-governmental oversight of what we do. And the ACGME, the Accreditation Council for Graduate Medical Education, is is sort of the overseeing body for residencies, one of many organizations that privately govern what we do to make sure that, you know, surgeons can sort of, can to some degree decide for themselves what constitutes competency instead of having the government decide that. Still a bureaucratic process, but for sure. the trend, I mean, you're, you're now going to be the first People are either the first programs in the United States that are doing yeah. surgical competency-based education. Right? Well, any competency-based. Yeah. You know, we're the first in the United States to engage in in medicine in competency-based training. It'll be an adventure. I think, again, given the unique situation that we're in, where we used to train people in five years, and during my time, you know, it's not that long ago that we moved to six. Mm-hmm. It's a perfect scenario to test the waters on right. competency-based. I mean, it's going to be hard in medicine or pediatrics that have three-year residencies. Yeah. 
So if you if you think about it, right, I mean, shaving off one of six or seven years, you can conceive of that. But when you only have three years to train, and, and if you institute competency-based, how much time are you going to be shaving off? And right. is it ultimately worth it to train two and three-quarters year versus three years? Or I, we'll have yet to see how that'll play out. Yeah, it, it certainly feels like like there is a sort of seismic but slow shift going on in, in the way we think about competency. I mean, I think someone asked a question in Grand Rounds about, you know, 10,000 hours for training. Right. And, and you know, having done 10,000 hours, I certainly didn't feel like I kind of didn't know what was going on at 9,999. And then, you know, an hour went by and suddenly it all became clear to me. And And thinking about, you know, just sort of incentives and basic economics, right? Like, if I had known that I could do one yes, less year of residency, if I just studied a little harder, worked a little harder, practiced a little bit more at home, would I have done it? I mean, almost certainly yes, right? If you yeah. sort of know you're stuck in this time, so, like, particularly you... for you, pediatric surgeon, how long did you train? <laughs> 10 years. Yeah. You know. I mean, that's 10 years after college, right. right? I mean, so did you really need all 10 years? Oh, um, 10 years after medical school. Ten years after medical yeah. school. Eight so, years of surgery residency with yeah. three years of research and two years of fellowship. Right. So, yeah. Right? right. I mean, there are, there are very practical realities to all of that. Um, yeah. And uh, particularly for pediatric surgery, did you need to do eight years of a general surgery residency to do pediatric surgery? I mean, that's, it's, there's no wasted time sharpening your sword. In the 10,000 hours is a reality. The more you do something, the better you are. And that's true for everybody and everything we do for the rest of our career. I'm a much better cleft lip and palate surgeon than when I started practice. But was I competent when I started practice? These are art forms that you do get better at, but that doesn't mean you do a 25-year residency. Right. Um, and it doesn't mean that the, the person at our stage does every operation. So there are patients who are going to have pediatric surgery done by those right out of training, and there are going to be those that get the experience that you have. I do think that there are those residents who you show them how to do something, and the next time they do it, they do it better than you do. And there are those folks. I mean, if you think about who does pediatric surgery fellowships, I mean, they are the cream of, there are, they've the best in high school, the best in college, the best in medical school, the best in general surgery. They're highly competent folks. There's going to be more virtuosos in that pool of people that can probably rise to the, you know, the challenge of finishing early. Yeah. And yet I still feel every day like, oh, if I could just go back to fellowship for six months, I'd, I'd know the right questions to ask, you know, and it's, it's a lifelong training process, right? But it's right. like, at what point do you, well, do you say like, okay, you're, you're good enough to practice yeah. independently and learn kind of on your exactly. own or from well, your you, colleagues, right? You just, you just, you just touched on something I, I really didn't mention in the talk and I should. Medicine is lifelong learning. It's a lifelong practice. It, they call, it's a practice for a reason. I mean, it's lifelong learning. Right. You will never arrive somewhere on that continuum between, you know, out of high school to where you you retire somewhere along that line, you're competent. Competent is being able to do it by yourself. But think about when you obtain competence and then what you're going to be like when you retire. Right. If you retire before you start to decline. <laughs> There's a huge difference in those two people. Yeah. But you got to do it sometime. 
Right. So all we're saying is having that needle of competency um, variable for in, for different people, because yeah. clearly there are some who take a little bit longer to meet that bare requirement of competency and being safe to be on their own. Right. But that doesn't mean they're going to stop getting, you know, better. Right. Right. But it's it's it just means that we're now moving towards a system where we can reliably assess like what does it mean to be competent tell people what that means and then let them kind of get there right. in their own time it makes a huge amount of sense yeah i mean i think about it now having a, a kid in in school why is our education system in america set up you know kindergarten 12 months first grade second grade there have got to be that has to hold back a lot of people yeah and push a lot of people forward that shouldn't be Right. You know, everybody moves from first grade to second grade. Yeah. Well, I know, hanging out with, you know, my kids' friends, they don't all read the same. And uh, so I wonder how, what, what competency-based education would look like, you know, in high school. Yeah. Um, and I think, obviously, smarter people than, than I have thought about that and are, are moving forward with that. It's great to see surgery leading the way in thinking about how we can critically assess, like, who's ready to practice and, and how we can do that. And it's great to see these traditions, right, of these sort of ancestors of surgery, of, of the Halstead mentality of, like, how do we do this better is perpetuated, right? That, like, these organizations and these programs that started 150 years ago, it's not like they are dead, right? It's like, was it Twain or Faulkner, right, who said, the past isn't dead, it isn't, isn't even past. Right, like it's it stalls. We're still living this, yeah, yeah. and even though it seems like sort of cut and dried bureaucracies, like this is the evolution of of medicine is an ongoing process. Yeah, we we certainly get better at it uh, as both individually and as a field um, of surgery. It uh, just in the last few hundred years, the uh, the incredible changes uh, that have taken place in American surgery and postgraduate education. It's remarkable. Yeah. Well, it's so exciting to see kind of what the next phase will bring. And congratulations to you on, on being at the forefront. And thank you again for coming in to speak with us today. It's been a great honor. Thank you. Join us next time on The Surgery Set when I speak with Dr. Jerry Doherty. He's the surgeon-in-chief at Brigham and Women's Hospital and the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston. We talk about the big questions of a surgeon's life. How do we organize our professional lives? What could the surgeon's office of the future look like? How do we sustain our careers and maintain a level of satisfaction? Big questions from a Grand Rounds he called simply surgery. And before I go, one more small favor to ask. We want to know more about our listeners so we can make the podcast better for you. We have a survey on the website, surgery.wisc.edu podcast. Listeners who fill out the survey will be entered to win a Wisconsin Badgers red stainless steel water bottle. Good luck. The Surgery Set is a production of the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This episode was produced by Chelsea Johnson and me, Jonathan Kohler. It was recorded by Chris Hansen and edited by Elizabeth DiNovella. Our theme song is On Wisconsin, arranged and produced by Jamie Schmidt. I encourage you to visit us at surgery.wisc.edu, where you can find links to Grand Rounds, free CME credits, and more. You can also check out the UW School of Medicine and Public Health video library for a wide range of medical education resources at videos.med.wisc.edu. In addition, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher. And of course, you can follow us on social media. 
You can like our Facebook page and also find us on Twitter at Whisk Surgery. And I'm at J.E. Kohler, K-O-H-L-E-R. Please feel free to let us know how we're doing, rate and review us on your podcast app, and don't hesitate to let us know of any topics you'd like us to cover. Thanks, and we hope you check back soon. Thank you.